And the noise that the tree made when it fell, it was so loud that the entire forest felt like it was shaking. I thought I was going to cry because it was just like a kind of like cry for help kind of thing. And I was just sat there and then there's just like almost that sound just sort of reverberated through the forest. And that was a training area using low impact forest management. This podcast focuses on the problem of deforestation and how this is impacting biodiversity loss. And in particular, how the tension between development and conservation is one that we're continuing to learn how to manage. We're going to travel around the world to learn about how this problem is manifesting itself in the Indonesian rainforests, in the Brazilian Amazon, and finally to reflect on some potential positives such as the African Green Wall. We discuss forest management, the growth of community forest, and some early promising developments. Forests grow over decades, over centuries. Replenishing them is far from instant, but growing awareness of the problem learning how to make environmental regulation stick and continuing to encourage stakeholders to play their part will be key to progress. Imposing solutions is not the answer. Dialogue and local community-led engagement is part of it. We sat down with Peck Chabal, who's an associate working on the climate change group at the CD Group C Group which is the UK government's development finance institution. The views he shares here, as with all our speakers, are their personal views and not of their organisation. Of course, I think everybody knows that deforestation is a huge issue for climate change. You know, standing rainforests have an important role in absorbing the carbon dioxide emissions that are produced by, by human and industrial operations. But what most people don't recognize is that they also have a critical role in preserving all sorts of natural processes and biodiversity. They regulate the fall of rain and other weather processes. They keep water in the soil, especially in many of the natural environments in Indonesia, which are not you know, just tropical rainforests, but peat forests, which play a very important role in regulating moisture. And of course, they're also home to an incredible array of biodiversity, including many of charismatic and unfortunately endangered animals, which I think people listening to this podcast will be very familiar with, animals such as the tiger, the elephant, the orangutan, that have become very much poster children, I would say, for deforestation that's going on all across the globe. Deforestation is an issue not just for preserving biodiversity, but also very much in our battle against climate change, which is an existential threat for all of us. Indonesia's rainforest enjoy incredible biodiversity and home to 10% of known mammal species and 17% of known bird species. Beck talks about why large animals are the most directly affected. Large mammals are especially affected because, of course, many of them sit at the top of the food chain. They're very reliant on the preservation and, and the you know, pristine nature of the rest of the ecosystem to support their, their lifestyle. But also, they often are the ones that come into direct contact with humans who are setting up farms and building establishments in ex-rainforest areas. And very often, you know, unfortunately, these animals either lose their habitats or come into violent conflict with human settlers. The result has been that we've seen over the past several decades a precipitous decline in the population of many of these animals. And that was before efforts were put in to preserve and set aside some of these areas for 
for these animals. And one thing that I think is really important to recognize as well is that just preserving small areas of rainforest is not going to work. Many of these animals require large undisturbed tracts of land, which is why one of the bases for, for conservation efforts in Indonesia has been trying to link up different national parks located in different geographic areas so that there is a corridor of wildlife, a corridor where these animals can travel back and forth. And so that has proven to be one of the cornerstones of what we call the landscape approach, which is taking into account not just a single area in your conservation plan, but the entire landscape surrounding that area. So that's something that is going to be a really important concept moving forward. Peck wrote the chapter of the book, Sustainable Innovation and Impact in 2015, and described the effect of the palm oil industry on deforestation and how rising awareness has changed the sector and the amount of progress that has been made. In the past, certainly before 2015, palm oil has been regarded as a little bit of a wild west in the sense that it was not a very regulated industry. There were many concentrated interests. There were also lots of, should we say, shady connections between people in the palm oil industry as, as well as people in government in many countries. I think this is a fact that is pretty well recognized even by the governments in, in the countries themselves. There are many levers that have acted to to change the situation. So the first I would like to point out was, was of course, consumer pressure. Since early 2010s, there's been a lot more scrutiny from the buyers themselves, people like you and I, the people who buy products consuming or containing palm oil, you know, things like food products, chocolate, bath soaps, and lots of other products that you wouldn't think palm oil would be in. And these people have been made aware of the fact that, you know, they are indirectly supporting practices that many people would find quite abhorrent. So that's the first reason people at the end of the consumer supply chain have tried to and, you know, have put in their money to, to supporting brands and manufacturers that are putting in more efforts to support more sustainable palm oil. And of course, these efforts have been made better and made more strident by the many civil society organizations, the, the NGOs, as well as the independent research organizations that have made a huge effort in trying to uncover some of these issues, bring them to light and educating the public about them. And I think it's also really important here to recognize that companies themselves have also been trying to grapple with these issues. And many of them, you know, although the industry is often portrayed in a slightly negative light, you know, there are companies that are, that are trying to go back in their supply chains and to reach to the levels of the farmers, reach to the levels of the suppliers and try and see what they can do to make things better. The palm oil supply chain is an extraordinarily complex one. And that's something that I think many people within the supply chain themselves had, had little idea of before these controversies came to light. And that's why it's been so difficult and so time consuming to try and increase the sustainability of palm oil. It's, it's one of the problems is simply because many buyers don't know where it comes from and it takes years to trace back the five, 10, often 20 or more layers to get back to the farm where, where the fruits are being grown. Lastly, the governments of the countries involved also had to play a huge role in setting the direction and increasing the strength of regulation in making sure that people breaking the laws with regards to forest burning, with regards to illegal land occupation, know that there would no longer be tolerance for these activities and then the apparatus of the government would actually come down and penalize them for doing so. Progress has been notable. In 2020, the country lost over 115,000 hectares of forest cover. Whilst that's an area the size of Los Angeles, it's a 75% drop from 2019 based on the figures from the Ministry of Environment and Forestry. 
They attributed the drop last year to a combination of a number of policies aimed at protecting the country's forest, including a permanent ban on issuing new permits to clear primary forests and peatlands, a moratorium on new oil palm plantation licenses, forest fire mitigation, a social forestry program, land rehabilitation, and increased form enforcement against environmental violations. The economic slowdown due to the COVID crisis was also a factor. So what kind of progress has been made? There have been a couple of crucial ingredients in, in this equation. And one of them is really the, the availability of very large detailed open source portals. You know, for instance, one of the main barriers to regulation traditionally in, in Indonesia, where I did a lot of my work concerning palm oil, was there was just no visibility and no central database on where these palm oil plantations, we call them concessions, where they are located, whether they overlap with other areas such as national parks, whether they even overlap with each other, and whether they overlap with areas that should be protected, such as peat forest. In order to protect these areas, the government first had to create a unified database and map of, of where all these areas were. And that effort in itself took many, many years and was one of the key ingredients towards stronger regulation. In parallel, I would say there were also really important efforts being made by civil society organizations, research organizations to try and create this information and unify it and make it available for the public. One of the institutions that played a really important role here was the World Resources Institute that basically created a platform called the Global Forest Watch, which allowed anybody to, to look at you know, maps of Indonesia and other heavily forested countries and overlay them with where fires were occurring in real time. This data was being captured by, by satellites, along with combined data sets of where these plantations, these concessions were located. And th that gave rise to a lot of, I would say, citizen journalism, citizen reporting, even in other countries, because now anybody could monitor where fires were occurring. Anybody could see where plantations were overlapping with protected areas. And it became quite obvious that there was a link between, for instance, the borders of plantations and where fires were occurring that led to the finding that, you know, these fires were often set by people who are intruding into the boundaries of these plantations, which led to the rise of much greater monitoring and more strict patrols. Data was really one of the cornerstones of, of stronger forest regulation. And I think that has been rewarded with the fall in deforestation that we've seen in recent years in Indonesia. Peg believes that 2021 is a critical year for deforestation awareness. We have really reached an inflection point in the permeation of the understanding of forests in the public consciousness, as well as in the consciousness of many corporates and business leaders. Net zero is a term that has gained a lot of traction and is being recognized as the key to delivering the goals of the Paris Agreement. In other words, in order to keep global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius, we need to absolutely get global emissions down to zero because there will almost certainly be some leftover emissions from hard to decarbonize sectors by the middle of the century, you know, sectors such as aviation, cement. That means that forests have a really critical role to play because forests are really the cheapest and the only way we have of removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere at the scale that we need. And shared his own experience with social forestry programs. So I think, in, firstly, it might be good to start with a definition of social forestry and 
broadly speaking, social forestry means taking the views and the economic livelihoods of the people living within and around the forest into account when deciding how to develop or use the forest area. It can take many forms, of course, at a very basic level, getting their free prior and informed consent before the land is developed, making sure that they have a share in whatever profits are generated. But you know, at a deeper level, since we now need to preserve forests on a, on a large scale, getting into a conversation with these people on, on how their land can be preserved while still generating the necessary income that they need to survive. This is, has been really, really key. Over the past decades, I think we have often been guilty in the development space of creating schemes for protecting forests and also schemes for supporting economic livelihoods, but not tying the two together. And of course, if people who are living on the land and have been living there for generations feel disenfranchised by large organizations who are coming into to either protect the land or to monetize the land through carbon credits or something like that, although these are definitely noble and goals that should be pursued, they can't be supported and they cannot be sustainable unless we have to buy in and the support of the people who are actually there and whose livelihoods depend on the land. So what we're seeing now really is the realization that the people there are the stewards and the governors of the land, and we're having more success in supporting environmental preservation if we also make sure that there are ways for them to support their livelihoods. We move now to Brazil. In the early part of this century, it seems that progress was being made. Between 2004 and the early 2010s, there was an 80% drop in annual forest loss in the Brazilian Amazon, which represents nearly two-thirds of the forest. This drop was driven by factors such as satellite monitoring, increased pressure from environmentalists for law enforcement, private and public sector initiatives, new protected areas, as well as macroeconomic trends. However, since 2012, this progress has stalled and is reversing, driven by an opening of the region to extractive industries and agribusiness. I sat down with Anna Yang, who's Executive Director of the Sustainability Accelerator at Chatham House, and who has many years' experience working directly in the Brazilian Amazon forest for various conservation organisations. I asked Anna where her work in forestry began. I think what started me in forestry was one of the field trips that I was sort of doing when I visited a research organization there was that they took me to a training area that they were doing low impact forest management. It was like a 250 years old tree. It was really tall. And the noise that the tree made when it fell, it was so loud that the entire forest felt like it was shaking. I thought I was going to cry because it was just like a kind of like cry for help kind of thing. And I was just sat there and then there's just like almost that sound just sort of reverberated through the forest. And that was a training area using low impact forest management. I think that was one of the like strongest, most vivid memory that I had, which is like, oh my God, you know, there's something about trees and forest that's like speaks to my heart. Anna painted a picture for us of the size of the Amazon area and what some of the challenges are. So the Brazilian Amazon's probably around, represents 60%, if not a little bit more, than of the Brazilian territory. So it's gigantic, right? And it has different types of vegetation from, like I said, what we imagine, like moist tropical forest to sort of some type of savanna to some type of grassland. It spans across, you know, nine subnational sort of 
states. Brazil is a federation, so it has quite a very like separate sort of, de- not delegated, quite a devolved structure. It has something around 25 million people living there. 80 to 90, probably 80 plus percent live in urban areas. I think we have something like more than 300 plus indigenous groups as well. Plus like nine types of different traditional communities that can be from like recent migrants to there is a very specific, which I always find interesting, quilombolas. So quilombolas are remote former slaves who ran away from the coast and then they ran into the forest and then they've been sort of living in secluded regions. And so they were like spread around Brazil. It's really, really interesting because they sort of maintain traditions that they brought from Africa, but like adapted to Brazilian context. In a way, there is this diversity of ethnicity and there is a lot of migration in between the states and people do move around. I asked her whether this was a conservation or a development problem. If you think about forestry development, deforestation in the Amazon, it's more than a conservation problem, right? It is a development problem. It is an economic development problem. It's a social development problem. And I think what is fascinating about uh, sort of what's happening well, what has happened in the Amazon and what's happening now is it is sort of the battleground of this whole concept about development and conservation. And obviously, things are a lot more nuanced, right? Because it is out the Amazon, the Brazilian Amazon, which is what I'm most familiar with. It's not a homogenous area. You have different classifications of biomes by types of vegetation. But it's just also, you know, one of the latest discussions that is, there are four major types of quote-unquote Amazon. One is the one that we, that, you know, the majority of people like to imagine, which is like this green, moist, lush forest with community, traditional population living there. That's one type. And then you have on the other spectrum, urban Amazon. You know, there's 24 million, 25 million people living in the Amazon, in the Brazilian Amazon, and 80 to 90% of them live in cities or some form of um, urban form. So those are the two extremes. And in the middle, you have next to them, I'm just saying. So from the the moist, tropical, sort of preserved area, you have the area which is in constant transition because that's where sort of the, the frontier of agriculture is pushing. This is where we see news, where there's a lot of land dispute, it's all about resource, right? Ultimately, it is about access to land and access to infrastructure. And then on the other, closer to sort of this urban Amazon, is an Amazon area that has been consolidated, or we'll call, the way we call it consolidated, has been deforested for like 30, 40 years. It's much longer, sort of older, established deforestation area that has cities or urban forms where a lot of agricultural activity actually happens there. The issue is how these different, these four areas interact with each other, and then the economic forces and social dynamics play out. I asked her about this tension between conservation and development, and how we could hope to align the two. 
I think they're not tied, and that's why we have what we have now. Because I think, and this is maybe a, a self critique, because I, you know, started my career in the forestry sector in the environmental movement, and there is this what well, we had. I had this idealized approach, which is we need to keep forests completely sort of intact. There's nobody living there. And then once I once I went there, I was like, oh my god, 24 million people communities you know living by the river and also they want they have wants and needs right i remember visiting this forestry community forestry area which is you know or instead of organized by a company it's organized by a small group of communities and i remember having this conversation with a family they, the first thing they bought with the extra cash was a fridge and there was no electricity or no electricity connected to the grid is from the generator because they have access to television. So they wanted the same lifestyle or same kind of life I had coming from Sao Paulo. And so for me, this is a development issue. It's like, who am I to tell them that they have to stay there, continue a traditional, quote unquote, lifestyle to do forestry management, which is really hard work. Obviously, you live in, you know, in the nature and all of that. But at the same time, like, if I don't give them the choice, well, I'm not I. If we don't give them the choice, let them choose what kind of lifestyle they want. If they want to have modern modcoms, you know, they have the same right as I do. We also know, for example, that if you put a road through the forest, you create the fishbone effect, right? You, you build a paved road, which then creates like this vertical branch out, which then have another branch out. And then all of a sudden you have like 50 kilometers on each side of, of sort of slowly eating into the forest. But that's like population having access, right? They are having access to land, which then they're clearing the land because they can put a cow and because they want to have, you know, better sort of different kind of economic alternative. This is why I was getting at, 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 at sort of this, I wouldn't say conflict, but this sort of interaction between economic and social development and conservation. And the fact that we know that if you put an infrastructure, a road in the middle of a forest, you're going to have deforestation impact. But at the same time, that's what's going to get that community access to school and hospitals. And then if it rains, they are not stranded. I mean, how do you equate that? We talked about these four types of land, urban, consolidated, transition, and green forest, and how the solutions for each were nuanced and specific. So for each of these typologies at Amazon, we need a group of different kind of economic activity. So for, like you said, the, the conserved green moist forest, it's mostly going to be around environmental services, some kind of carbon credit and all we call protection economy, which is basically how do you make sure that the population, the traditional population that depends on the forest are making some kind of living out of that. I think in the area which has been consolidated already, obviously you don't want that to keep on expanding because a lot of deforestation right now happens because of land speculation, because nobody knows who owns the land. So mm. people go in, they put a, you know, they deforest, they put a couple of cattle on it, they have developed, and then at some point they can claim the ownership. And so the moment you start to bring more certainty in terms of land use planning, a bit clarity in terms of, you know, land titling, the process and transparency around that, it's a really important cross-cutting element 
that maybe private sectors cannot get involved, but they can ask for it. Right? You can say, do you have do you have land title? Do you because like that is like the, the precondition. So the second thing which I mentioned about is like let's not expand the consolidated area so that it doesn't encroach on the transition, which doesn't encroach on, on, on the on the conservation plan. What that the ask from the international community actually only hit the organized large-scale commodity players because they're, they care about export market, blah, blah, blah. To what extent that these large-scale national players have control on their supply chain? Because it's all about like how much information you have on your supply chain and how much control like in terms of formality and legality. But there is like a whole host of small-scale informal, and I'm not even saying legal because we don't actually know because it's informal, that we can't see, right? Because the system doesn't catch. And for me, there is this, there, so there are really strong signals that international, international players can send down from the international market to the large-scale producers in Brazil so that they, they control their supply chain. But it doesn't catch anything that's informal. And so there's almost this concept of dark Amazon that nobody really knows and really sees. And we don't actually know how big is this dark Amazon. But we know that because of lack of institutions, just the presence of the state, it's probably pretty big. If we don't understand and size up what you do with the informal and smaller sectors, you are just catching part of the problem but not the whole, the entirety of it. There are some unintended consequences when you do a supply chain cleanup. Also, there's this dynamic between crops, right? So it started with sugarcane and then it became soy. And then soy is also, it's in a different region, but the same piece of land, if sugarcane will give you a better price in the international market, people will, will convert from soy to sugarcane, right? This is the interplay between crops, which I'm not the expert, but I kind of get the the big picture of it. And so you can see the first wave of environmental movement working in sugarcane, which then ended up in, in soy. And now, and then about 10, 15 years ago, people started dealing with cattle. And when people, when we started dealing with cattle, maybe 70% of cattle industry was informal and small and no one like working a spot market and blah, blah. And then over the t- last period, because of investment from the National Development Bank, because of the signals that environmental movement and investors sent, there has been a consolidation of the cattle industry. So something like now four companies own 50% or 50 plus percent of the entire market. And then people say, well, but what about fair transition? I was like, yeah, but if you want to have control of your supply chain, you need system in place and you need investment. So there are all these unintended consequences in terms of market consolidation that you catch on one side, but then you do, do, have we left people behind? And and it's about understanding that both, you know, that part of the sort of particularly consolidated, that the economic development need is needed by the community, but that consolidation can have a lot of unintended consequences. And you need to, to be thinking about not only the need to bring together the different sort of communities in supply chain, but actually the way that you do it, if it's not just and fair, if it's not inclusive, is actually all you're doing is pushing the problem elsewhere and you're probably expanding the problem rather than shrinking it. So are we looking here at this sort of law of 
unintended consequences and what are the players that we need to bring back? If we think from the perspective of unintended consequences, I think this is where and this is why focusing on conservation or a, a green quote-unquote agenda alone is not enough. Because if you do not take into consideration sort of the social dynamics and the social aspect of whatever actor of the area that you're working with, whether it's a consolidated Amazon or transition Amazon, it's almost like the conservation agenda is not going to be long-lasting because it doesn't have the buy-in from the locals, right? Because it's just something that has been posed that looks amazing on paper, but because it doesn't get the buy-in from the local players, whether it's social or economic, they don't stick, right? There's this expression in Brazil that we will say whether the regulation stuck or not. And Brazil actually has really, really good environmental regulations. They are just badly implemented because you do have like sort of broad framework on what do you do with conservation, like particular areas that are pretty robust. And Brazil has like one of the largest particular areas in the world. But I think more importantly is for sort of the transition and a consolidated area, for whatever conservation regulation or package that we have, you need to have some kind of social and economic return because otherwise it just doesn't gain traction. And then obviously the solutions are not long lasting. And then obviously, like you said, you know, there is this unintended consequences of once you clean up your supply chain, but if you don't bring everybody along, there are people who just like, they fall into the quote unquote dark Amazon because nobody can see it and nobody knows. And finally, it is clear, although a complex area where long-term solutions are required, there is reason for hope. The Great Green Wall is a symbol of hope against one of the biggest challenges of our time, desertification. Launched in 2007 by the African Union, this is a game-changing African-led initiative that aims to restore Africa's degraded landscapes and transform millions of lives in one of the world's poorest regions, the Shasal. Once complete, the wall will be the largest living structure on the planet an 8,000-kilometre natural wonder of the world stretching across the entire width of the continent. The Great Green Wall is now being implemented in more than 20 countries across Africa, and more than $8 billion have been mobilised and pledged for its support. I'm Nick Spencer. Thank you for listening to this Biodiversity Podcast Series, a collaborative project between the International Business of Federated Hermes and Gordian Advice.